Do you consider yourself an American? What does that actually mean? Is it because of where you were born? Is it a question of citizenship, a question of what you believe? There are some questions that seem to have obvious answers, but are more complicated than they sound in a slogan. What is at the heart of American identity is one of those questions. Today, we go back to the beginning to discuss the creation of American identity at the founding of the United States with Dr. Lindsay Travinsky. This is too complicated for history. Welcome to Too Complicated for History. I am Isaac, insecure about his bachelor's degree, Loftus. And I am Dr. Lynn Price Robbins. And today we're welcoming presidential historian and author of The Cabinet, Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky. Thanks for joining us today, Lindsay. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Today we're talking about a national identity, the creation of a national identity or American identity, how we would think about it today. Uh, I guess the first question that I have for you. And it's one that Lynn and I asked each other recently. Do you have a good answer for what it means to be an American like today? (laughs) That's such a good question. Um, No, uh, because I don't think there has ever been one answer. I think there had from the very beginning of the American colonies and then the United States, that has been a contested question and who counts and who belongs in that equation has changed over time, but is has never been settled or agreed upon. Do you think you could give us some context into like the like what was the situation prior to the the American Revolution? Like right 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 ahead of that, did we consider ourselves British citizens, colonial citizens? Were we you know uh, where did the people's like primary sort of identity or loyalty lie? Absolutely. So most residents in North America, or I should say most white residents in North America, considered themselves to be British subjects and quite proud of it. They were among the most loyal citizens of the king. There was what was called the cult of monarchy, especially in the Seven Years' War when the colonies and British forces fought against the French and their native allies. And there was a real sense that the colonies were an essential part of the British Empire. They were contributing. They were very proud of their status. They were very proud of their British history. Now, for the enslaved or uh, African-American individuals who lived in North America, that's a much harder question to answer because many of them had their own sort of national and tribal loyalties that had been ripped from them from Africa or the Native Americans, of course, who lived on North America had their own tribal or nation status as well. So when we're talking about, you know, how people felt, typically it's important to sort of draw those distinctions. But for white Americans, they consider themselves to be British subjects. Interesting. Do uh, do you think there's any rationale for, I don't know, Lynn, have you ever been in a major city during St. Patrick's Day? There's a point to the story, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) I I have. And and it seems like in those days, everybody becomes Irish all of a sudden. (laughs) Yeah, there's this, I don't don't look it, but I'm half Irish. And, And then there's 
this um, <laughs> phenomenon for people that are in like diaspora communities um, to become more fervently grounded in that identity as you get farther distance from the homeland. So like Irish people from Ireland make fun of us in America, Irish people in America for doing that performative kind of like Irish jig and dance, I suppose, like the <laughs> song and dance. Um, and it's interesting that you're that, uh, Lindsay, that you were saying that they felt very fervently British, uh, at least the white, white colonists felt very fervently British because it's sort of like that phenomenon occur seems to have been the case even back then. That's a really interesting parallel. And it's absolutely the case in the North American colonies. Wealthy subjects sent their children back to England or Scotland to get an education. And there was an outpouring of goods around the British monarchy in particular. Whenever there was a wedding or an event, there would be a new China set or a neat new tea set that would sort of um, mark this occasion. And not unlike today when there's a royal wedding and there's all this stuff that comes out of it to sort of mark the occasion. But the North American colonists were some of the most fervent purchasers of those goods. They were the very best market for those items. I think once we understand that, it makes it seem a lot more dramatic that during the revolution, they seemingly so quickly rid themselves of this British pride and created a whole new identity for themselves, at least, as you said, the the white citizens of the colonies, of the American colonies. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how, how did that happen? Yeah, it's a really fascinating turnaround. And I think there's a very important development that helps explain how this happens. When there starts to be conflict between the colonists and the British officials over various taxation measures, the colonists blame the cabinet, the ministry, for instigating the, these new taxes. And they initially think that the king is very much on their side and that the king will protect them and the king will step in and ensure their rights and liberties. And that assumption continues up until basically early 1776, to the point where Americans are referring to the British troops in Boston, you know, like the, the ones that have taken over the city mm-hmm. as the ministry's troops. They're not the king's troops, they're the ministry's troops. And it's not until sort of that final break with the king, the olive branch petition that's turned down, that they realize that the king too has turned against them and is not going to step in. And that therefore, maybe the constitutional system that they had thought was so brilliant and going to protect their their rights and liberties was actually quite flawed. And then we start to see a pretty significant shift. And despite the shift, though, I mean, as you pointed out, you have to then create something. You can't just go from being British citizens to being angry at the king. You have to come up with a new identity. And so there was a real effort to try and create an American ethos. But anytime you create a new identity or a new group or a new you know, nation or whatever you want to create from the beginning, that's a real challenge because fostering those loyalties and those emotional ties takes a long time. And Perhaps where there's the most success is with the army. Washington becomes this sort of national figure and is perhaps the best known person in the country. He is very symbolic, certainly for the soldiers 
and Congress recognized the important symbolic role he played. They referred to the army as Washington's army because the soldiers were so committed to his leadership and his command. But there still is not, I mean, there wasn't an American flag like we think of. There wasn't the same sort of nationalism. And that took a really long time. It was there were there values or something what like aside from washington as sort of like a, a a concept or as a person was there were there anything that they sort of pinned it on because i know that there's t- at least today what we tend to sort of pin things on is sort of belief in a representative government um f- vague notions of freedom those kinds of things we can get into like how if, if it ever gets distilled over time into something more solidified but but back then was where the did they what did they try to pin it on outside of, you know, or did they try to pin it on anything outside of Washington? I think they pinned it on a couple of things. So there was this sense of freedom and liberty, and they were going to fight for their liberties. Now, if you dug into what that meant, you started to get on pretty shaky territory because <laughs> no one really agreed. If you asked 100 people, you were going to come up with 100 definitions. But there was a sense that they were fighting for their liberties, and that was at least something they could all sort of agree upon. There was also an understanding that they did need to come together. There's that you know very famous join or die flag that Benjamin Franklin comes up with. So there's, there is a sense that if they go their separate ways, they're probably going to fail, but there does need to be some sort of unity among them. And there is a big sense that they are starting this new project and maybe they're sort of destined to be leaders in the future. And this sort of all gets wrapped up into westward expansion and, you know, the fact that so many of them come from families that had immigrated over. And and there's sort of this identity that they are starting something new and they're going to, to lead into the future and they're going to march west and they're going to expand. But it was still very fuzzy. It wasn't like the manifest destiny concept that we come to know in the 19th century or even sort of the frontier concept that is still talked about today. I remember learning about how once the revolution started, women started to make their own clothes. And so they said, well, we're not going to import things anymore. We're going to create this. It's sort of the the made in the USA that we have today and things like that, that sort of helped to create this connection and that these, these fancy British or European goods were no longer as prized. Um, and I think I also read that Jefferson agreed with this, but then he managed to cheat and still order some things um, <laughs> secretly. So that, you know, he's like, oh, oh, I won't order anything. We're, we're Americans. And then he like, you know, snuck and ordered a bunch of stuff from from Europe. And that so, sounds about right. <laughs> so do you think that you think that was an important part? And did that involve other classes as well? Because we're talking about, of course, the white population, if not the the more wealthy white population. Did things like that trickle down at all as far as, you know, sort of creating a more cohesive feeling of identity? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there were it certainly helped that there was sort of like a shared sense of sacrifice. And I should well, let me back up and say I should be very careful to point out that there was a portion of the North American white population that still remained very loyal to the crown. And they considered themselves to still be British. They were often called loyalists. Many fled at the end of the war. So there was never a unified sense across the continent. And then there was a percentage of the population 
that didn't really have strong feelings one way or the other and was just trying to survive and would generally deal with whoever was closest to them and try and remain at peace as much as possible. And you can understand if you are a small farmer and you have a family and you're, you know, barely kind of providing for yourself and the British army marches through, you're not going to cause any trouble. Same thing if the Continental Army, you know, comes through your land. So there's a a percentage of the population that really doesn't care and doesn't want to get into the high-minded sort of political identity and just wants to survive. But then there is this portion that is, you know, trying to craft this new identity. And for them, a shared sense of sacrifice, a shared sense of contribution does really help build up this camaraderie. And it's something that can help sort of smooth over the different cultural differences. So when we're talking about, you know, what was the culture like, New England had a very different regional culture than the South did. But if they were both going to boycott tea because that was a British good and they were going to instead focus on coffee or other items, that was something they could do together. Similarly, they were going to, you know, boycott British wool and they could have homespun. And that was something they could do together. And it was also something that both the elite people and sort of more of the middle working classes could share because the working classes were already using homespun. They couldn't really afford French silk or English wool because they were expensive. And so it did have a certain leveling effect in terms of participation in the revolutionary cause. It's interesting because all the things you described are still, I guess, defining what it means to be American in antithesis to something else. Mm-hmm. As opposed to defining what you know, having a firm understanding of what it means, like you know, it's we we don't wear British clothes, or we don't wear imported clothes, or we don't drink British tea. It's interesting. Moving past the revolution, does is there anything after you know the country after the founding that kind of solidifies that level of identity? Because it you know it's a it's an interesting thing to sort of define yourself in antithesis to something else as opposed to having a firm, affirmative sense of like, this is what makes us, us. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I I think this is one of the reasons, you know, I've said that there's never really been any one moment because we are a nation of immigrants. And so with the exception, of course, of Native Americans. So we are inherently a nation that has brought together all of these different cultures. And so it's really hard to have one touchstone or one identity. We are not a racially or ethnically uniform nation like some other older nations in Europe might be. And so, for example, there are some cultural elements that we sort of think of as distinctly American, like, you know, cowboy culture or barbecue or, you know, things like that, that sort of in the 20th century make us think of what it is to be an American But most of those generally have roots in other cultures. They have been borrowed and then sort of tweaked to suit our national story. And that is very difficult to sort of rally around. And yet I actually think that's really extraordinary and what makes the nation pretty unique. But it does lend itself to division and divide and make it harder for people sometimes to come together. Yeah, I was going to say it's a being the non-historian in the room right now, are there any other examples of of sort of trying to coalesce a national identity around like a non-ethno state or like a not like a, around a principle, I suppose, uh, rather than? Well, the couple of examples I can kind of 
think of, um, you know, the British concept of keep calm and carry on comes from World War II and sort of the sense of stoicism and, you know, trying to have a stiff upper lip in the face of crisis or challenges, which is not really an ethnic or religious trait. It's just kind of a cultural trait and sort of what they have embraced as, as their way. I mean, there are other sort of cultural elements, you know, in France or in places like Spain, but even then those cultural elements tend to be sort of surface level, you know, it's like maybe it's cuisine, but even then some of the best cuisine in France is Vietnamese and some of the best cuisine (laughs) in London is, you know, Indian. And so, um, and rightfully so. And so it's just, you know, I think it's really defining that national identity is hard. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fascinating question when you get when you get down to it and uh the fact that there you know the evolution of it from that initial sort of uh, idea of like hey we should be independent and and we got to connect all these disparate colonies together is still sort of occurring i don't know about you i mean we, we we chatted in a conversation a little bit ago Lindsay, that traveling around it there are still giant cultural differences in the country those didn't go away entirely uh over time if anything some, some of them got more distinct and others got sort of like mulled over. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. I mean, so if we look at the white population in like the 1780s, more what we would consider to now be Americans had traveled to London than had traveled to Philadelphia. And Philadelphia was the largest city at the time. So their shared cultural sense was the shared cultural tie to the homeland, to the mother country. And that was a enough of a shared cultural tie that they were actually fairly homogeneous as a culture. There were cultural differences, but you know, it was a overwhelmingly Christian society. It was in it was in certain places, least an overwhelmingly white society, at least early on, and you know, a a mostly Protestant society. Now, when we get to the twenty first century, I've lived all across the country and in a lot of different places, and I may as well have lived in different countries because they, you know, Los Angeles and Dallas, Texas, and Washington D.C. have no business being in the same country as each other. They are so different, and so you know, each have their own real identity and driving forces and populations and cultures, and that is one of the challenges of of a nation this size that was built on people that came from other places. That's really, that's interesting because before they became American, of course, they were British, but they also considered sort of their colony as their, you know, as their country. And I'm from, I'm from Pittsburgh and I never thought of myself as a northerner. I was just, I lived in Pittsburgh and then I moved to Virginia and all of a sudden I was, I was a northerner. (laughs) I was a Yankee. And so I just decided, okay, I'll, I'll just embrace it. Yes, I'm a Yankee. I had to, you know, this whole new identity that I never thought of and they decided that's what I was. And so that's what I became. Um, And so, you know, it's interesting that they had, you know, George Washington to hang on to. He became more of like a national identity versus this, you know, colony by colony, state by state. Um, and I know that you're, you're next, you're writing a book about John Adams. And I know that he was um, an interesting figure. So after George Washington passed away, and he's no longer that, that, you know, connecting figure, what happened with the identity? Was it you know, similar to what we have today? Um, was there something else that they were able to cling on to for a while? Sort of what was that transition away from 
Washington as identity? It's a great question. As Washington lost some of the unifying force in the final years of his presidency and his life, um, the nation really does go through some really intense divides. So if I described a decade to you where I said there was really intense partisan conflict, there was a fear of political violence, there was a fear of immigration and disease brought by immigrants. There were questions about who got to belong as citizens, what was required of citizenship. There were fears of um, elections not necessarily being fair or accurate. There was fears of um, legislation against political enemies and sedition and questions about whether or not there would be peaceful transitions of power. You might think I was talking about today. And Absolutely. So. <laughs> and all of those things applied to the 1790s, especially the late 1790s. And so John Adams was faced with, you know, holding together a nation that didn't want anything to do with each other. You know, a, a lot of Western and Southern states really didn't trust the eastern portions of their states or eastern seaboard states and Federalists and Republicans, this is, of course, Jeffersonian Republicans, were tearing each other apart. There were rumors of arson and mob violence in Philadelphia every day, and threats to the president's personal safety were delivered to his door in Philadelphia because, of course, there was no Secret Service and there were no gates. So it was a extraordinarily tense time. In moments like that, external threats tend to be useful because they provide a rallying point around which the country can sort of respond. France provided sort of a useful enemy in during the quasi-war in 1798. And then once peace was secured in 1800 with France, tensions with Great Britain started to ramp up again and eventually led, of course, to the War of 1812. And I don't ever like to say that anything is inevitable, but I think that there was a desire to have a common enemy that made ongoing conflict with the British, who didn't really want to treat the United States like an independent nation and kind of still wanted to treat the United States like a colony, as, as close to inevitable as possible. And a lot of people actually at the time referred to the War of 1812 as the Second War of Independence. And that is incredibly useful to understand sort of the mentality at the time in that Americans needed that common enemy. They needed someone to fight. They needed to prove that they could be independent again and have a common cause to rally behind. And, and that's really what we saw. And during that war, the Federalist Party fully collapsed, which, you know, sort of helped temporarily erase some of those partisan divisions. That's interesting because it's it's just long enough for people to forget what the war was like. The, the first war was like. Exactly. And a lot of the people had died. So there weren't people saying like, that's a really bad idea. I mean, there's somewhere, you know, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were both still around, but they were among the older and, and some of the few remaining founders. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Right. That's really interesting. So you were saying that, that you know, the, it's useful to have a common enemy. Is that where, and you were saying like questions of like who belongs, is that where, you know, because nativism kind of crops up shockingly quickly 
uh, after the nation <laughs> yep. is founded. Uh, and, and surprisingly so, given that, you know, everyone else, if we say that, hey, where everyone's, you know, a fit, like you're all descended from immigrants for the most part here today. But back then it was like legitimately like your dad for everybody because it was <laughs> like they had all just recently immigrated within the last hundred years. There was no one that could claim like long lineage. There are very few people, at least. It, it, was that another source of like, oh, hey, here's another, you know, uh, were people using that as like a political sort of galvanizing point? Like, hey, here's another, these are the outsiders and these are the insiders, in addition to the war and the, that sort of external conflict with other nation states? Yeah. So I think there were two key issues that led to that nativism right away. The first was a genuine lack of understanding about how disease worked. So there were several sort of rippling outbreaks of yellow fever, starting with a really bad one in Philadelphia in 1793. And because they didn't have sort of our understanding of medicine, they noticed that yellow fever tended to break out in the late summer. And they noticed that there seemed to be a correlation between highly populated dense areas and also the arrival of ships and trade. And so Federalists argued that immigrants from places like the Caribbean in Africa brought this disease. And Jeffersonian Republicans argued that the disease was a product of bad air or miasmas, as they referred to them, in cities. Because cities were dirty and there wasn't, you know, <laughs> there wasn't the type of sanitation that we would consider to be appropriate today. The wharfs were often like just disgusting bogs of garbage and carcasses and nastiness. I'm sure it smelled delightful. So the truth is that actually both of these answers are correct. Yellow fever comes from a mosquito that is infected and bites humans. It probably, those cases did come from a ship in the Caribbean where yellow fever was year round in Philadelphia, of course, with winters, you did not have it year round. So it probably was first introduced by a ship, um, a cargo hold that had, you know, bad water where mosquitoes bred. And then once it got to Philadelphia, the conditions in the city were like a playground for mosquitoes and their larvae. So it was really both. So I think initially there was a real concern that people coming to the country maybe were bringing diseases. That was then exacerbated by the political realities on the ground in that most immigrants from places, especially like Ireland, France, uh, people fleeing the violence in France and people fleeing the violence in Haiti, they tended to support the Jeffersonian Republicans. And so if immigrants were going to support one political party, the other political party, which were the Federalists, were going to sort of recognize that and capitalize on it. And so the overlap between their fears of immigrants bringing disease and their fears of immigrants giving too much political power to the other side it's really hard to distinguish those things because I do believe that there was a genuine fear of the disease. It was terrible and very deadly, but it was absolutely politically motivated as well. It's interesting that you you sort of was like, oh, they didn't understand how the disease worked at a certain level. But I was like, they were like de-lousing people immigrating from the South America like 40 years or 30 years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's just, uh, it's... Um, you can see how they're really trying to understand the medicine and like they get close. So they understand that like bad conditions in the city cause something, but then they think it's the air as opposed to usually it's the water. Um, so they just, they're, they're almost there, but not quite. Right. 
<laughs> That's very interesting. I actually wouldn't have guessed, this is a little bit off topic, but I wouldn't have guessed that immigrants supported the Jefferson, um, you know, the Jeffersonians, the, the, uh, as opposed to the Federalists. Not that I, I had any assumptions otherwise, I just never thought about it. Yeah. Well, a lot of it had to do again with like, who was the enemy? So the Irish hated the British and Federalists tended to cozy up to the British. And, um, you know, people fleeing from France hated the British and they tended to cozy up to the country that, or excuse me, the party that supported France and, you know, opposed Britain. So a lot of it had to do with sort of those, again, those identities of who is your enemy and who is your friend. That's fascinating. That's actually still true today, at least a certain level. Um, There's, you know, there's a very um, conservative strain within like the Vietnamese community here in LA. Um, And a lot of that has to do with the fact that their families fled like an invasive communist regime Mm -hmm. in Vietnam. So it's like, you know, the who is the the idea of social being slightly closer to socialism like the Democrats are today. We can argue how close that is. But just from a marketing perspective, you can see how they gravitate towards the oppositional party that is very anti. Well, that, yeah, it's also true of, you know, the Cuban population in Florida and also the sort of refugee populations from places like Ukraine and Russia. They tend to be on the more conservative side because they object to anything that's deemed sort of, you know, close to socialism or communism or, or that type of extreme right. leader. Huh. Right. So, so John Adams, of course, was a federalist. And um, so he was in support of the Alien and Sedition Acts. And so was this sort of the federalist's way of trying to control immigration? Was this a backlash uh, at newly arrived immigrants. Can you tell us a little about the those alien acts that were passed? Yeah. So I think it's helpful to separate the two because um, the one is definitely more politically motivated. The, they're both politically motivated, but one perhaps had more legitimate fears than the other. So let's start with the Sedition Acts. The Sedition Acts made it illegal to basically criticize the federal government, which on its head sounds terrible <laughs> and absolutely flagrantly mm-hmm. in violation of the First Amendment, which it is. However, it's, I think, very important to remember at the time, we do we have laws today that say that you cannot print things that will promote violence. You cannot, you know, scream fire in a crowded theater. Those laws did not exist at the time. And newspapers just printed lies left and right constantly with absolutely no ramifications. And there were real and genuine fears that the slander and falsehoods in the newspaper were going to lead to physical violence. And for example, Abigail Adams wrote in her letters all the time about the threats, uh, the rumors that were going around that, you know, Republican leaders were going to set the city on fire. One of her servants, and I say servants intentionally because they did hire people, found a letter behind in the alley behind their house with a plot to execute all of the Federalist leaders. So, I mean, like there were real and genuine concerns of violence. And she thought that if they didn't do something to limit these lies, it was going to lead to a civil war. Was this the appropriate way to do it? Probably not. But I think it is important to understand that context behind the sedition laws. Now, they were enforced in a, you know, obviously very partisan way. Only Jeffersonian Republican editors were 
arrested and prosecuted for these things. So not such a great outcome. And it when in when the law expired in 1801, Jefferson had no problem, um, you know, letting letting it expire. Although I should say that Adams did grant some pardons to the people who were prosecuted at the very end of his presidency. But anyway, so that's the sedition piece. The alien piece is a little bit messier um, because it it does appear to be so politically driven. So it made it harder to become a citizen. You had to wait 14 years as opposed to, um, I think it had been seven at various points. The president was able to export any citizen of a foreign nation or detain any citizen of an enemy nation. Now, I should say that there are fairly similar laws in terms of the exporting and the detaining piece that were put on the books in World War I and World War II, and some still actually remain on the laws or on the law books. So those type of laws are sort of an established part of national security. They're just very selectively at least today, they are very selectively enforced. Um, Woodrow Wilson used them to arrest and detain a lot of German citizens during World War I, and it was the same concept behind Japanese internment in World War II. So there's sort of a long history of that in the nation. It unfortunately starts in this place in 1798 with the Alien Acts, and um, Adams didn't actually really enforce all that much. He didn't detain anyone. Um, He didn't export anyone. But it had the outcome of making the Federalist Party even more unpopular with immigrant communities and really led to the Republican, one of the reasons that led to the Republican victory in 1800. If I can ask a very seemingly simple question, how was citizen defined back then? Were women considered citizens? Are we just talking about individuals who could vote? Who was actually included in that definition? Oh, that's such a tricky question. (laughs) And you're right on its face. It's (laughs) supposed to be so simple, but it's not. So um, the truth is that each state had a different definition. For a short window after the revolution, women could vote in certain states like New Jersey. The Museum of the American Revolution has a fantastic exhibit on this subject. And then that window closed and women were no longer included. I would have to double check, but my understanding is that citizen did include women in in this bill. The definition of citizen included women because women immigrants could become citizens. They just couldn't vote. Right. Right. Um, And, you know, they still couldn't, in some cases, couldn't own property and coverture applied in a lot of places as well. So I think that they could become citizens, but obviously the benefits and rights of citizenship were much limited for women and people of color. Just just to reiterate a point that you just made, there were places where women could vote in the 18th century. Yeah, there was a short window after the revolution where suffrage was granted to women and then it was removed as suffrage expanded to non-propertied white males starting in the early 1800s. Jefferson opposed suffrage for women in case you wanted to add that to your tally of Jefferson <laughs> things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't, I don't have a follow-up point. I just wanted to just to be, be very clear to the listeners if they're listening to that, that was something that happened and then it went away. Yeah, and imagine being the woman who could vote and then could no longer vote. 
oh, it would have been so infuriating. That's infuriating. I, I just think that it's important to point out because there's a, a notion that, and, and this is sort of an older concept, but it still remains that history happens, like progress happens linearly. Like things get better over time. And the ebb and flow of things like that are just, I think, a little brush over. So just wanted to, just wanted to, you know, things can regress just as much as they can progress. That does happen. That's really interesting. Now, where were the like? So, as far as becoming people immigrating, you said there was a lot of people from Ireland, a lot of folks from France and Haiti. Is that where the immigrants were primarily coming from in that at that point? The- yes. Yeah, so um, during the Haitian Revolution, a lot of white people who had lived on what was Saint-Domingue, which was the French colony, then became Haiti after it won its independence. A lot of white residents fled because there were these really gruesome race wars between white and black armies, but then also mixed armies. It was a very complicated rebellion, um, but with really terrible, terrible violence. And so a lot of people fled and came to the United States. Well, I should say that, that we we uh, uh, are avoiding partly because of the, the the makeup of this discussion. I think the parties involved necessarily we're not necessarily equipped to talk about you know American identity for for people who are formerly or currently enslaved and then later formerly <laughs> enslaved over the course of the you know the nineteenth century. But just to talk about becoming American, like when those those so those immigrants came from France or in, in England or uh, Ireland and Haiti and. Were, was the goal to assimilate or was it the, like, did that, is that hap Was there programs to do that? Was that incentivized or was it kind of still, were they treated as others for uh, the, the time being? It's a great question. So there were programs to help assimilation, but not so much with immigrants. Those programs were primarily focused on either Native American communities, helping bring them into sort of the farming, human farmer lifestyle or programs that were designed to convert enslaved um, Africans and then African-Americans to Christianity. So they, it was not really focused on like the Irish or the French. And in places like Philadelphia, there was, a, there was actually a time when that sort of diversity was actually quite celebrated. So some of the French immigrants that had fled the reign of terror established a pretty vibrant community in Philadelphia. There's a great book called When the United States Spoke French about that community. And there were bookstores that sold books in French and there were, you know, classes and newspapers and all sorts of things to continue to facilitate the the French community to keep that alive, to keep those bonds present. Not unlike, you know, we see today with immigrant communities, they they both engage with the larger, you know, sort of American society, but then often have sort of a, a smaller community of their own kinsmen or people that come from their their own country so that they can continue that heritage and those cultural ties. And that was, I think, a fairly similar concept. A lot of the uh, German Americans that had come earlier in the 18th century tended to settle in the same place. And for example, in Western Pennsylvania, that tended to be a pretty heavily German American 
region. Um, so there was the same sort of trends that we would see in the 19th and in the 20th century as well. So it sounds like, uh, would it be fair to say that the early immigrants weren't necessarily coming for something, but they were trying to escape something? That it wasn't so much that they wanted to come and become Americans, but they were trying to find a better situation than what they were in originally? Or do you think they were coming for something, you know, some... Well, I think there was both you know, what we would call the push and the pull factors. So the push factors are they are escaping violence or oppression in some way. And the pull factors are the promise of a better economic future for themselves and for their families. So land was much more accessible for um, immigrants and people in general in the United States because it was being seized from Native Americans and was relatively cheap than in places like Britain or Ireland where people had been farming the land for you know centuries. So I think that there are there are both of those factors. There's always a reason if you're going to go someplace, there always has to be a reason why you think that place is going to be better than the place that you're leaving. Um, but you, so it's really hard to separate. It's usually both. That's really interesting. And we, so this actually is a little bit tied into land being available. But we, you mentioned earlier that the Western parts of the colonies didn't necessarily trust the Eastern part of the colonies. And I think that divide is a little bit not well understood, um, just generally speaking, like that there was a cultural difference or just sort of a, the, you know, the folks that were on the coast versus the folks that were a little bit on the what the colonies would consider the frontier, but you know, obviously, isn't a frontier for the people who were already living there. That's their home. Could you explain a little bit about what the differences was? Like, so they were mostly like small family farms and things like that out to the west, versus people who were more merchants and things in, in the cities to the east. Is that kind of the divide that was taking place? Yeah. So there are a couple of different divides that that occur. So the first is, as you pointed out, there's a difference in economics. So people on in the western portions of the state, they tend to be farmers, they tend to have their, you know, small family distilleries to grind down any grain or corn and distill it into alcohol which can be used to barter or is easier to sell. Um that maybe they have, you know, some sort of husbandry in terms of animals, but they're not going to generally be the huge plantations we're going to see in places like, you know, sort of the eastern seaboard of South Carolina or the old parts of Virginia. And they're definitely not going to be the merchants and traders and bankers that we're going to see in places like Philadelphia, Charleston, Boston, etc. So there's that economic divide, which also tends to also overlap with the cultural divide. If you live in Western Pennsylvania, you're probably not sending your children to do education in places like London or Edinburgh or do the European tour, which is still done after the revolution by a lot of the very wealthy families on the Eastern seaboard. And those cultural differences and economic differences are exacerbated by the lived realities of the time and the demands that they have of their government. So if you live on the Western portion of the state, your primary diplomatic concern is whether or not your town is going to be attacked by a Native American nation. And, you know, rightfully so, because a lot of these settlers had, you know, sort of instigated this conflict. But nonetheless, that was your primary concern is you wanted defense from your government. You wanted protection from your government. Um, you didn't really care about, you know, what Great Britain was doing on the Atlantic Ocean. That was not really relevant to you. Whereas if you are a merchant in Boston, 
you might think, why should I be giving funds to help defend you? You started it by moving out there and taking the land from Native Americans. And you're going to care much more if, you know, British ships are attacking your ships while you're trying to conduct trade. So you're going to have very, very, very different concerns. One other big element was sort of the role of the Mississippi. So in the Treaty of Paris, which ended the revolution, the United States territory went up to the Mississippi, but did not grant it access to the Mississippi. That was controlled by Spain. And for people who lived in places like what's today Pittsburgh, it was very essential to have access to that river in order to be able to send your goods to port, like New Orleans, to sell them before they rotted or they went bad. Or you would have to pay a fortune to send them over the mountains to a place like Philadelphia. Now, again, a lot of Easterners didn't really care about Mississippi and were more than happy to sort of give up that concern in diplomatic negotiations if it got them something they wanted. And these dueling concerns came to a head once we actually brought together political institutions like the state legislatures and Congress because Eastern populations tended to be more populous, which meant that they tended to have better representation both within their own states and then within the United States Congress. So their concerns, whether they be political, diplomatic, or economic, tended to be better represented than the concerns of the Western populations because of the population numbers. So what that meant was this sense of Western populations were convinced that they were being sold out or they were being hung out to dry by the Eastern populations. And that was only adding additional fuel to the fire. That's interesting. Yeah, because there's a pretty solid divide. The general gist of the conversation I think that we're having right now is giving me the idea that that, you know, we face a lot of cultural divides where it feels like we're trying to unite a bunch of different peoples today. And I think that that, you know, it's it's definitely magnet because there's more people, more land, more cultures involved in, you know, participating in what is America today. But it seems like they were having the same kind of arguments, the same disputes, the same kind of, you know, hey, those, those guys in the beltway don't understand what's happening on Main Street is the same conversation that was happening 250 years ago, almost. Absolutely. And I think that that gets at sort of the original divide between Hamilton and Jefferson, which is who is the ideal American? And Jefferson thinks that it's sort of the yeoman farmer who can, you know, provide for his family and is independent of other forces because he doesn't rely on someone else for a wage. Whereas Hamilton thinks it's, you know, maybe the laborer or the merchant in an urban city who needs support from the government for trade and and diplomacy. And That is, as you pointed out, very much a conflict we still have today in terms of, you know, is it the urban resident who lives in New York City or is it the person who has the white picket fence in Iowa? Who is the ideal American? And we really don't have an answer to that question. Has your has your research given you any any thoughts or any indications on what you think we need to do or could do as you know, citizens of the United States to be a more unified nation or to be more cohesive identity? Or should we just accept the fact that this is who we've always been and we can unify around the fact that we are diverse and we are not one? 
identity. Our identity is that we are not one identity. <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, I think that having a better understanding of who the founders were, what they intended and what their understanding was, is actually incredibly productive because understanding that from the very beginning, there were disagreements about what the nation should be and who should belong. Understanding that very few of them were pleased with the outcome of the Constitutional Convention and really viewed the Constitution as a hodgepodge of compromises and hoped desperately that future generations would be creative enough to come up with the solutions to problems that they either couldn't figure out or couldn't even envision. And if we understand that that was their hope for our country. And the legacy is to constantly make it a more perfect union. It is not a perfect union. The, the, the point is to make it a more perfect union with every generation. Then that is actually a much more hopeful future and something we can continue to aspire to, as opposed to saying they had it all right, or we should go back to their vision. They knew that they were very flawed humans. And the best thing we can do to live up to the legacy that they left for us is to continue to try and improve it, to not believe that they had all the answers and instead to be constantly trying to strive for more. And that's going to mean that our idea of what it means to be an American should and will continue to evolve as the country evolves. Oh, that's a great answer. <laughs> it is a good answer. It sounds like you're distilling that the pursuit of improvement is in of itself a value. Yes. And, and I have to say my, you know, my favorite my favorite historical subjects are the ones that understand their own flaws and often make jokes about them, um, are very self-deprecating, like John Quincy Adams or John Adams, or even to a certain extent, George Washington. He didn't make as many jokes, but he knew what his flaws were and was always trying to get better. They were always trying to improve. They were always trying to increase their education, their knowledge, their ability to handle situations. And, you know, that is to be commended and that aspect of their life is something we can and should replicate in ours. Wow. I think that's great advice to live by. And I think that might be a great place to end it. <laughs> on a positive note. I like exactly. ending on a positive exactly. note. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lindsay, for joining us. My pleasure. This was really fun. Yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. I definitely learned a lot. Uh, uh, yes, thank you so much. Oh, th no, no. Thank you for including me. I'm really excited about this Um all of this project. I think it will be fantastic. And I can't wait to see it whenever you are all ready to share it on the various platforms in which you're ready to share. Yeah. Them. And if, if, um, if you want to share with our listeners, um, if you have, uh, do you have anything online that they could find your work? Could... Absolutely. So my website is Lindsay Chervinsky. My last name starts with a CH. If you butcher it, that's fine. There's only one of me. So you will find me or Google will. <laughs> I also have a newsletter called Imperfect Union, which is fitting for what we were just talking about. And I send out a monthly history essay. And then I also include links to whatever podcasts or op-eds or other articles I've been working on. So that's a good way to stay on top of things. And lastly, I am pretty active on social media. My favorite channel is Twitter. And so my handle is LM Chervinsky on that. Yeah, I would recommend the newsletter greatly. I do subscribe. Oh, I do you. as well. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right, thanks again, Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. My pleasure. Talk to you guys soon. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to the first episode of Too Complicated for History. And for that, we sincerely thank you. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast, or check out the link in the description. 
This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. See you in two weeks for our next episode about the Marquis de Lafayette with Mike Duncan. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media, produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins. Edited and mixed by Curtis Fritsch. Opening theme music by Sheena Biratello.